Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everybody, to the sixth episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week uh, with, about what's happening within the financial markets um, and hot topics going on in the financial planning world. Um, this week, it's a little bit of a different week because Matt is out, so we'll miss Matt today. So everyone's stuck with uh, 30 minutes of me for uh, for today's episode, but next week we'll be back on our normal schedule of having uh, Matt back on the podcast. So uh, it's been a pretty busy week um, since we last had our episode number five last Thursday, um, so a decent amount to talk about today. So as always, I just wanted to start and take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the close on July 31st. So these numbers are the final numbers for the month of July. And all of this data is from stockcharts.com. So the S&P 500 index finished the month uh, up 1.31% and is currently up 18.89% for the year. The Dow finished the month up 1.12% and stands at 16.69% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index finished up 2.11% for the month and is up 23.21% for the year. Uh, the IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Small Cap Index uh, was up 0.68 for the month of July and is currently up 17.65% for the year. The International Index X United States was down 1.12% for the month of July and is up 11.18% for the year. Moving on to the Treasury yields, the three-month Treasury is currently at 2.08%. The two-year Treasury uh, sits at 1.85% and the 10-year Treasury uh, currently at 2.06%. So the big news from this week, uh, yesterday, um, the Federal Reserve made their interest rate announcement, and I know that we've previewed this over the last few episodes, and the Federal Reserve decided to cut interest rates yesterday by 0.25%, and the markets finished sharply lower yesterday after the Fed announcement, with the Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ all down more than 1%. So the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, indicated that this rate cut was more of a policy adjustment rather than the start of a consistent trend of interest rate cuts. So I believe this spooked the markets because people were anticipating Powell to hint at a future rate cut possibilities, uh, which he did not. And again, in plain English, lower interest rates typically encourages more spending and investing in the economy, which is beneficial excuse me, beneficial, obviously, for the stock market. So even though the Fed did cut rates, the market was anticipating um, more of a nod of assurance of more rate cuts uh, at the end of this year and going into 2020, and we did not get that. 
Um, so I believe that that's kind of why the market sold off yesterday after uh, the Federal Reserve made their announcement. So I know we've been talking about the Fed a lot, so I won't beat the drum on that anymore. Um, we're also uh, pretty much a good way through Q2 earnings season with most of the heavy hitters uh, reporting already. And uh, earlier this week, Apple reported better than expected results, uh, which sent the stock higher uh, yesterday. Even though it was dragged down with the overall market, it still finished the day in the green. And uh, we closed at around the 213 number on Apple. Um, and then Amazon reported last week, and Amazon missed earnings expectations, um, and they were citing heavy investment in its one-day shipping infrastructure so that um, kind of dragged Amazon down the past few days just slightly though um, kind of just pulling back to its key moving averages so it wasn't like it was a watershed sell-off um, and you know I think Amazon wanted to you know reiterate that you know they're not as profitable as they could be right now because they're investing in their future. So if Amazon wanted to become a lot more profitable, they could do it in a drop of a hat. But, you know, for things like uh, investing in the one-day shipping infrastructure um, to benefit their clients going forward, I think that they think um, it's a good investment for right now. So like I said, most of the heavy hitters have already reported, um, and it seems like most companies are beating analyst expectations. Um more than companies that aren't, which is a good sign for the market. So uh, we still have a couple weeks or so of, of earnings reports to come out, but uh, the majority uh, or the larger, uh, more notable ones have already happened. So moving on to the next section of our podcast to talk about uh, articles, tweets, and research from the week that we found interesting. And the first thing I want to talk about is uh, a note from Bespoke Investment Group yesterday where they highlighted that another economic indicator, uh, which is named the Chicago Producers Manufacturing Index, or Chicago PMI, came in lower than expected. So the Chicago PMI attempts to measure the health of the manufacturing sector in the Chicago region, um, so it isn't a national indicator. So Bespoke says, because the gauge measures manufacturing, which has become an increasingly small sector of the U.S. economy, it is not nearly as representative of the U.S. economy as it once was. That doesn't mean the weakness should be ignored, but the reading is not as significant as it used to be. They go on to say that what stands out about the current period is the velocity of which the Chicago PMI has declined as it has essentially been a straight line lower. Um, so here again, it's not that often that you see a one-year deterioration of this magnitude. And when you do, it often coincides with recessions, end quote. Um, so again, just another piece of economic information to get added to the list of negatives that Matt and I have discussed over the past few weeks, it doesn't mean uh, panic sell, um, but it's just another piece of information that you have to take into the equation. Um, the second uh, thing I wanted to bring up was an article by Michael Batnick uh, called More Art Than Science. And this was posted back um, in the middle of June. And this has to do with uh, economist predictions on future interest rates. So I thought it was pretty timely with uh, us just getting an interest rate cut um, to go over this article. 
So Michael starts out the article by saying, what do Chad Pennington, Giovanni Carmazzi, Chris Redman, T. Martin, and Mark Bulger all have in common? They're all quarterbacks, and they were all drafted before Tom Brady, who, with six Super Bowl rings, is arguably the greatest player of all time. So how is it possible that 198 players were selected before him? Because drafting players is more art than science, meaning there has to be a little bit of luck in this drafting process. So Michael goes on to say that the Wall Street Journal shared an amazing graphic showing predictions from 50 economists on the direction of interest rates. The average forecast for the end of June, which was the end of this previous June in 2019, was 3.39% on the 10-year treasury. Not one of them came close to where rates currently are. Economists are not dumb people. It's just that predicting interest rates has nothing to do with intelligence. It's more art than science. So the 10-year yield currently sits at 2.06%, as I mentioned uh, just a moment ago. And I know that everyone puts economists up on a pedestal, but economists are just like me and you. Um, You know, we can't predict the future. We can give our best guess and our best estimate to where interest rates will go or where stock prices are going to go. But at the end of the day, no one has a crystal ball. So instead of trying to predict the future, try simplifying it. Um, you know, you, you want to be in the market when we're in an uptrend and you want to be out of the market when we're in a downtrend. And there's several different metrics to quantify this, but almost take it down to a third grade level um, with just wanting to be in the market when, when we're uptrending and, and getting out of the market when we're downtrending. Um, really, you got to break it down to make it as simple as that and cut out the rest of the noise. Um, so I just want everyone to be skeptical of people um, who tell you exactly where, say, Amazon will be 56 days from today. Um, because again, um, if any of us could predict the future, no one uh, would be doing what we're doing right now. We'd probably be on a beach uh, sipping pina coladas somewhere, but that's not the case. Um, so instead of trying to predict the future, um, just try following the trend. You know, the past 10 years, we've been in a massive bull market. And if you've been in the market, you've done great. Um, so those are the type of secular bull markets that if you pull up a chart of the S&P 500, you know that you have to be in because we're in an uptrend. Um, so another way kind of to just block out some of the noise that we hear Uh, on a day-to-day basis from from the media. So the next thing I wanted to discuss was um, actually a tweet from back on April 7th of this year by Peter Malik, and I found it pretty interesting. He said, to become a millionaire by age 65, a 20-year-old needs to save $3,300 per year and a 30-year-old $6,800 per year assuming a 7% rate of return. So I thought this was pretty good because it gives people a process to stick to. So in good markets and in bad markets, keep your contribution rate stable and over a long period of time, the compounded growth will pay off. And I think this is the biggest challenge for most people when they're trying to save for retirement is that they don't have an automatic contribution system set up so that they are contributing that 3300 per year or 6800 per year. 
I think the problem lies in the fact that it's more of just on a whim, if they have an extra 200 or $300 that month, they'll contribute it to their IRA or um, their Roth or their after-tax account. Um, but really holding yourself to um, that, you know, you can, you can achieve significant wealth if you just stick to the process. So moving on, um, that's really all I had for the articles and tweets and research for the week that uh, kind of caught our eye. Um, and this week's financial planning topic of the week comes from an article written by Christine Benz, which took place on April 22nd of 2019, and it's titled Learning from My Mistakes. So Christine works for Morningstar, and in this article, she shares some of the things she wishes she did a little better earlier in her financial life. And I think the things that Christine mentions here are pretty relatable to most of the population, so I thought it would be a good article to share. So the first thing Christine mentions is delaying IRA contributions. And she says, ideally, you'd make your IRA contributions as soon as you're eligible, at the beginning of each tax year, as doing so allows you to benefit from more months and in turn years of tax-free compounding. So if you look at the chart of the S&P 500 going back to, say, 1980, one can easily objectively see that it goes up the majority of the time. So you wanna take advantage of making those contributions as early in the year as possible in order to benefit from that compounded growth. Now you can make prior year contributions up until the tax filing deadline, but it's not a best practice. So for example, if I wanted to make a um, 2019 contribution and we're already in February of 2020, I have until my tax filing deadline of 2020 to make a prior year contribution for 2019 if you haven't done so already. Again, not a best practice, um, but it is there if it had just slipped your mind throughout the year that you didn't make an IRA contribution. So my kind of tip here is to automate your yearly IRA contributions by setting a calendar reminder every year for the first week of January. That way you're, benef you're benefiting from the, um, the compounded growth that I talked about um, earlier uh, in this paragraph. So I think it goes back to the point that I made a couple minutes ago where you just have to automate the process. Um, and I think all of us can find uh, some money in our budgets if we do a deep dive to say, okay, at the every year at the beginning of January, I'm going to contribute X amount um, for the year. And if you can't do the full um, the full amount uh, into the contributions of the IRAs, then do some in the first half of the year and some in the second half of the year and break it down. So in 2019, the contribution limit is six thousand for an IRA and 7,000 um, if you're over 50 years old. So go ahead, like I said, and automate that yearly contribution in the beginning of January. Um, it'll definitely benefit you in the long run. The second thing that um, Christine talks about is holding a tax-unfriendly fund in a taxable account. So Lisa talks about how she held a mutual fund in an after-tax account and that mutual fund paid massive capital gains distributions in 2012, 2014, 15, 17, and 18. 
So even if you don't directly sell shares of a mutual fund, most do pay capital gains distributions, which you will have to pay tax on um, in the year that mutual fund pays out the capital gain. So tax deferred accounts like IRAs are much better suited for mutual funds that pay a capital gain because you don't have to pay tax on that gain um, when the mutual fund distributes it. In tax deferred accounts like IRAs, you only pay tax when you take money from the account. So again, um, holding mutual funds that pay these capital gains distributions in an after-tax account is just very inefficient from, uh, from a tax standpoint. So um, if anyone has any more questions on that or what they can do to, to minimize that, um, please don't hesitate to submit um, a question to us via uh, social media sites or um, my email at mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com. The third thing that Christine talks about is holding too much cash. And again, I'm not going to uh, beat a dead horse on this one because Matt and I have talked about it pretty extensively in previous podcasts that uh, being too conservative can really actually hurt you in the long run. Um, but the only thing I will say about this is from our experience, everyone has this psychological amount of money that they need at the bank at all times, whether that's $2,000, $20,000, or $70,000. Typically, there's a number that everyone wants uh, in the bank at all times to make them feel comfortable when their head hits the pillow every night. And typically, what we suggest, um, and we believe uh, to be in your best interest, is that everything over and above that number, that psychological number, that you have in the bank, you need to be saving and investing. So obviously in academia world, there's that you know three to six months living expenses is good to have an emergency savings account, like um, just a, a savings account at a bank. Um, but then you also have to, to deal with that psychological number that most people uh, have that they want that money in the bank at all times that they have access to. Uh, but again, everything uh, over and above that number should be saved and invested. And the last thing I wanted to discuss from this article um, was Christine saying uh, the mistake of putting off the long-term care decision. So this is something that we haven't talked about on the podcast a lot, and a lot of people do not consider when planning for retirement. But with the rising cost of health care, one should at least consider long-term care insurance. At the minimum, open a health savings account, and a lot of employers offer this as a benefit. And you can max it out uh, every year if you can. And you are able to invest your HSAs now in the market for additional growth. So this is a great way to save for future health care expenses. Um, and contributions to HSAs are tax deductible. So if you're under the IRS limit in terms of income, you can deduct HSA contributions um, from your income. So if you wanted to uh, check out what those income limitations are, you can just Google them and easily find what those are. So um, also, if you currently have a funded HSA, you're able to pay long-term care insurance premiums directly out of the HSA, which makes it very, very easy. 
So again, I'm not recommending long-term care or not recommending long-term care, but I just think it's something that everyone needs to look into and make the decision for their personal situation. Um, you know, we've just seen too many times where people have not saved or budgeted for healthcare expenses. And as you get older and older, obviously, um, you know, you're typically spending more of your nest egg on healthcare expenses. So typically the first 10 years of retirement, we see um, clients that spend money uh, on a discretionary basis. So they're uh, taking vacations, um, they're traveling uh, around the country, they're spending more time with family, with the grandkids, doing things that they like. Um, and then the next 10 years, the discretionary spending tends to taper off and um, you know they're spending more time with family, they're not traveling as much. And then the next 10 years, we really see um, healthcare expenses uh, become a larger and larger part of their expenses. So again, just something to think about and to look into, um, not recommending it or not, but um, you know, definitely something to consider with uh, how crazy um, the inflation of healthcare expenses have been over the past several years. So this week, we don't have any questions that were submitted uh, from listeners. So um, that'll do it for me this week. Um, sorry, you guys missed uh, Matt this week, but he will be back again, like I said, uh, next week on Thursday, and we'll be back to our normal schedule with both of us um, bringing you all the information you need to know from the week. So thank you again for listening to the sixth episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful weekend and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Well, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.